Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. This is the story of the apocalypse, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Our context is this, in chapter 5 we've just seen all creation and all the angels and all in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and under the sea. Everybody's praising God. A bunch of praise breaking out in heaven. Why? Because... There was someone that was worthy to break the seals of a testament, the seals of a will, the will being the new covenant. It had seven seals, and the one who was able to break the seal, the seals, was the Lamb of God, the slain Lamb of God who was standing because he was still living. So now we're going to look at what happens when the seals are broken. And so Revelation 6, 1 through 8 is the first four seals, which are also the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So we start with verse 1. Revelation 6, Then I saw when the, Lord, when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a loud, with a voice of thunder, Come! Now let me give you some introduction about this chapter, of these four seals. First of all, if the Olivet Discourse is about AD 70, which I believe it is, and if we can show parallels with chapter 6 of Revelation and the Olivet Discourse, mainly in Matthew 24, then this will show that Revelation 6, the four seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, is also about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Parallels with the Olivet Discourse, which showed the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, when not one stone would be left on top of another stone of the temple before that wicked generation of Jews passed away, and... Revelation 6-1, when the four horsemen appear, destroying Jerusalem. So we're going to look at that parallel. Now, I'm going to give you some evidence, which I think is a is slam-dunk proof that the book of Revelation is John's version of the Olivet Discourse. In fact, some people have called the Olivet Discourse the Little Apocalypse because it parallels the book of Revelation so much. I'm going to give you the quote of a well-known Revelation commentator, R.H. Charles. He was not a preterist. But he wrote in 1920 that the six seals follow exactly the same order as in the Olivet Discourse. And I'm going to show you that. The first seal, and, and by doing this, this also kind of gives a good introduction to the, to the four horsemen. The first seal, Revelation 6, 1 through 2, Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. A crown was given to him, and he went out as a conqueror in order to conquer. All right, the first seal is a white horse with a conqueror on it. That's Jesus. What did Jesus do? He went out as a conqueror in order to conquer. What did Jesus say in Matthew 24, 6 in the Olivet Discourse? You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. So there's a parallel between wars in Revelation 6 and wars in the Olivet Discourse. Now, we need to make a point here that when Jesus conquered, he conquered by his word, the sword of his mouth, the sword which comes out of his mouth, which is the word of God in Revelation 19. But here, he is using the unwitting armies of Rome to wipe out the apostate Jews who murdered him. And so, he's holding a bow. That stands for military conquest, and he's going out to conquer. And that, so he's using the Romans for that. And so that is why there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, mainly between the Romans and the Jews. 8066 to 8070, the Jewish War. All right, so that's the first seal, war, uh, wars. The second seal shows international strife. Revelation 6, 3 through 4, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse went out, a fiery red one, and its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another. And a large sword was given to him. Sword, slaughter, War, everybody knows red horse stands for war. Red is blood. 
Now, we need to translate earth as land, as I've said many times. Gay can be translated that way. So its rider was allowed to take peace from the land. Matthew 24, 7. We go to the Olivet Discourse. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Peace is taken from the land of Israel in the run-up to the Jewish war. The third seal exhibits famine. Revelation 6, 5 through 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there was a black horse. Its rider held a set of scales in his hand. Then I heard something like a voice among the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the oil and the wine. So the man on the black horse is announcing that it costs a day's wage, a denarius, to eat just to buy food, to buy wheat, because there's famine conditions in the city. Matthew 24, 7, second part of the verse says this in the Olivet Discourse. There will be famines, dot, 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 in various places. So there you have a tie-in between Revelation chapter 6, the third seal, and the Olivet Discourse. Then we go to the fourth seal, which represents pestilence or death, which was created by certain things, including pestilence. Revelation 6, 7, and 8. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following after him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild animals of the earth. Plague is pestilence. Matthew 24, 7. This is the King James Version. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. Now, some manuscripts leave out pestilence. King James leaves it in because some manuscripts have pestilences. I'm assuming it's in there. And if it is, that shows a parallel between Revelation and Olivet Discourse once again. And now, the, the fifth seal is also a parallel. And we're not going to do the fifth seal in this audio, but let me go ahead and take a sneak peek at it. Revelation Revelation 6, 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. Why were they slaughtered? Because they were being persecuted. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. So they were killed, they were slaughtered, they were persecuted. That's the fifth seal. Jump into the Olivet Discourse. We're still moving along now in the same order, by the way. No change in order. Matthew 24, 9 and 10. Then they will hand you over to be persecuted and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. So there's persecution in the fifth seal, persecution in the Olivet Discourse. Then many will fall away, betray one another and hate one another. How about the sixth seal? In the sixth seal in Revelation, you see decreation. Revelation 6, 12 through 17. Then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. When I say decreation, I mean prophetic apocalyptic imagery illustrating the destruction of the created universe. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up. And every mountain and island was moved from its place. And the kings of the earth or the, or the rulers of the land, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Because the great day of their wrath has come. All right. Well, there's regime change, folks. The, Jew, the Jewish nation is going down. That's typical apocalyptic 
imagery, and here's some examples of decreation in the Revelation passage I just read to you. The sun turns black, the moon turns blood, the stars fall to the earth, the heavens rolled up like a scroll, and the mountains and islands move out of their places. Now let's drop down in the Olivet Discourse to verses 29, 30, and 31. In Matthew 24, immediately after the stress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not shed its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Dot, 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 dot. So here's some examples of decoration in the Matthew 24 Olivet Discourse passage. You've got the sun going dark, the moon not giving light, stars falling from, heaven, falling, from, falling from heaven, and the powers of heaven being shaken. Well, that's pretty close. That's a pretty close parallel. Some of the elements of the universe that are decreated are a little bit different in the Olivet Discourse and Revelation, but the idea is there. So you see a clear, clear connection between the Olivet Discourse and the six seals in Revelation chapter 6. And if you believe, as I do, because I'm an Orthodox preterist, if you believe that Olivet Discourse refers to the destruction of Jerusalem and the run-up thereto in AD 70, well, so does the six seals of Revelation 6. Now, I said earlier, these first four seals are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That's just the fancy name that people have given to it. Now, let me introduce to you the basic structure of Revelation, which you probably already know already. But the uh, the judgment that comes on Israel is based on sevens. You've got seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And the seven seals, the last seal, contains the seven trumpets. Then you got seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet contains the seven bowls or the seven chalices. And then, and what you have is judgment, 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 but it increases, as we'll see. So that's the basic structure. Now, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, that phrase has actually made it into American folklore. I've heard it all my life. In fact, I was surprised to find out it was in Revelation, because I always thought it referred to football in Notre Dame. The four horsemen of the apocalypse refers to the backfield of Notre Dame four uh, offensive backs for Notre Dame from 1922 to 1924. Now, they were called the Four Horsemen of Notre Dame, not the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, but you can tell where, they, where the imagery came from because Grantland Rice, the famed sports writer, came up with the idea. Notre Dame had just beaten a very strong Army team in the Four Horsemen's sophomore year, and this is what Grantland Rice wrote in the New York Herald Tribune, quote, Outlined against a blue-gray October sky, the four horsemen ride again, rode again. In dramatic lore, their names are death, destruction, pestilence, and famine. Where did he get that from? He got that from Revelation. But those are aliases. Their real names are Stooldreer, Crowley, Miller, and Layden. They form the crest of the South Bend Cyclone, that's Notre Dame, Cyclone before which another fighting army team was swept over the precipice at the polo grounds this afternoon as 55,000 spectators peered down upon the bewildering panorama spread out upon the green plain below. That's when sports writers knew how to write. That was when football was an honorable enterprise and not an association of multimillionaire privileged people who can't find it within their heart to stand up for the national anthem. But at any rate, that's a little rabbit trail. Now, four horsemen, David Chilton claims that the four has significance. I don't think so. Chilton is what is called a maximalist. He looks for symbolism on top of symbolism on top of symbolism. And he's very creative, and he and I think he's right on the money on in a lot of his symbolism. But he goes so far that I think that a critical article written about Chilton by Greg Bonson 
which I happen to read, is correct because Bonson criticized Chilton, and he used that word, a maximalist, says he pushes the symbolism too far, but I, but maybe he does. I think he does, but let's see what Chilton says about the number four. Quote, biblical symbolism views the earth, and especially the land of Israel, as God's four-cornered altar, and thus often represents wide-sweeping national judgments in a fourfold manner. In other words, just as a an animal is killed on the altar, which has four corners with the horns on it, so are people slaughtered on God's battlefield, which has which has four corners, like we say the four corners of the earth. It's a great idea. I don't know if it's true or not. but Now, these four horsemen have an Old Testament counterpart in Zechariah 6, 2 through 5, where we see the same four horsemen, same colors, but they're not in the same order. Let me read that for you, Zechariah 6, 2 through 5. In the first chariot were red horses, and in the second chariot black horses, and in the third chariot white horses, and in the fourth chariot grizzled and bay, that means pale, pale green horses. Then I answered and said unto the angel that talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are the four spirits, the winds of heavens, which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. Now, I won't get into the Zechariah symbolism. That's enough in itself. But just note that the colors are the same. And in Zechariah, the four horsemen of the four winds, which are God's chariots driven by his agents who go back and forth patrolling the earth, God's means of controlling history. Actually, in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 1, we read this. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or on the land or on the sea nor on any tree. So there you have the number four symbolizing a wide expanse of creation. And you see the idea of control because the four angels are controlling the judgment that was about to fall on the earth. Well, our report lets you decide about Chilton, about whether the number four here has any significance. So to summarize, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are the beginning of sorrows and the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, one little manuscript note here. The King James has a funny way of saying the way the first living creature said, come. I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with the voice of thunder comes, the way the New American Standard Bible has it. But the King James has says, come and see, which sounds like the first living creature is coming to John and saying, come and see what's going on here. No, we're going to see there's parallelism between the four living creatures. Each living creature calls out one seal or says, as Jesus breaks the seal, one of the living creatures says, come. In other words, come, horse, out of the seal or out of heaven somewhere, maybe not out of the seal. I'm not exactly sure what that looked like in the vision. But it wasn't calling John the first angel. He was calling calling out that first horse. The King James reading is not supported in most of the manuscripts, as Bruce Gore says. Let's take a look at how the other living creatures call. They don't say, come to John. They say, come to the horses. Revelation 6, 3, when he opened the second seal, that's the lamb, Jesus opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Revelation 6, 5, when he, Jesus, opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. I'm not saying come to John, but come horse. Revelation 6, 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. Not come John, but come horse. Revelation 6, 2, I looked and behold a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering into conquer. So this is the first seal that's been opened. A white horse shows up on the scene and he who sat on it had a bow. Who is that he? Well, I'm going to have to bring up some dispensationalist interpretation here. I hate to do this, but they have so poisoned the well when it comes to interpreting Revelation that they've got a lot of people thinking that it's the Antichrist who's sitting on the horse. Hal Lindsey says, 
the Antichrist is the only person who could accomplish all these feats. There's a couple dissenters in the dispensationalist camp, and may God bless them. Henry Morris, the famous creationist, and Zane C. Hodges, the famous easy believism guy, they say, no, it's Jesus, it's not the Antichrist. But most dispensationalists say it's the Antichrist, and that fits right in with their general pessimillennialism. It's all going to hell at the end. An attitude which completely vitiates the theme of dominion and victory that you see all through the book of Revelation. All through the New Covenant age, because the book of Revelation is about the New Covenant from First Advent to Second Advent. That testament that was had seven seals on it that was being broken open, that was the New Covenant for now. For, or actually for back then in, 80, in the first century as well as for now. So let's forget the idea that the, he is the Antichrist. It's Jesus. He's riding on a white horse here in the first seal. He rides on a white horse in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. I'll read 11 and 13, Revelation 19. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So this Jesus on the white horse in Revelation 19 is making war. Now he's conquering with his word in Revelation 19. He's conquering with a sword and a bow. Excuse me, not a sword. He's conquering with a bow, which is a military weapon in Revelation 6 too. And some people complained about that and said, well, see there, the imagery doesn't match. Well, several commentators have pointed out that, that Jesus is using the military power of the Romans to destroy Jerusalem, thus receiving vindication for his execution. So Rome is acting as God's unwilling servant, just as Babylon did when Babylon destroyed Israel, just as Assyria did when Babylon destroyed northern Israel, and just like Rome is when Rome is destroying first century Israel in AD 70. So that's not a problem. So Jesus was conquering with a bow, a crown was given to him. That's a symbol of victory, dominion, rulership, which fits right in with Jesus receiving a kingdom and dominion in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. It doesn't fit in with the Antichrist. The Antichrist is not going to rule. There is no future Antichrist. It's not anywhere in the scriptures. Jesus is going to rule. And Jesus went out conquering into conquer. And of course, he's conquering the same nation that murdered him. Jesus wears a crown in the book of Revelation and more in and, and places other than this one in the on the uh, white horse in the first seal for example in revelation 14 14 and i looked and behold a white cloud and upon the cloud one set like unto the son of man having on his head a golden crown revelation 19 11 and 12 that's the white horse i just read it and it says in verse 12 his eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and that's a symbol of his rulership he went out conquering into conquerors Nikaio is the Greek word. It's the same word that's used for overcoming in the chapters 2 and 3 where the angels, the messengers were sent to the seven churches and they were said to overcome, to overcome, to overcome despite their persecution and despite the heresy within them. Here's just one example, Revelation 3.21. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me, sit with Jesus in my throne, even as I also overcame and have sat down with my father in his throne. So Jesus overcame, the church overcomes. Jesus conquers, the church conquers. This is victory, folks. This is not doom and gloom in Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye. Let me give you another optimistic verse from Revelation 5, 5. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed, or hath conquered. He has overcome to open the book. 
and to loose the seven seals thereof. So Jesus is a conquering Jesus in Revelation, and that's why he's the guy on the white horse. You know, we even have that imagery in our language. The girl is looking for somebody to deliver her from her sad spinsterhood, and lo, here comes the Prince Charming on the white horse to deliver her. A white horse is always a symbol of military might. I, saw, I, I don't know that Napoleon did this. He might have. I don't know. But at any rate, it's so sad. The dispensations have taken a verse in which Jesus conquers and have given the victory to the Antichrist. Now that should give you an idea of what you should do with the dispensationalist system of theology. It is bunkum, folks. And I know I'm being a little bit polemical here and a little bit harsh on these guys. They're great people. I'm not complaining about their spirituality. My grandmother was a dispensationalist. My mother was a dispensationalist. My other grandmother was a dispensationalist. My early Bible teachers were dispensationalists. They're godly people. But their system of eschatology is bunkum. It's awful. We go now to Revelation 6, verse 3 and 4. When he broke the second seal, all right, we've left the first seal, the first horse of the apocalypse, and now we're going to the second seal, the second horse of the apocalypse. When he broke the second seal, that's Jesus. I heard the second living creature saying, Come, Jesus broke the second seal. And another, a red horse went out. And to him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth. I'm going to translate that as land. He was granted to take peace from the land and that men should slay one another, that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. The red horse is symbolic of war because blood is red. This is non-controversial. Everybody says that. Which particular war is being talked about here? Well, that is more controversial. I say it represents the war in Israel and Rome that in the run-up to 87, Israel and Israel fought each other. Now, the reason I said it should be translated land, because the red horse is granted to take granted to take peace from the land, is because that fits right in with the scheme of Revelation 7 as being judgments on Israel, the land of Israel. The land of Israel is about to get judged for killing Jesus. Then men would slay one another. Now, this was fulfilled in Israel just before AD 70. There's a lot of bloodshed going on in the Jewish war. Let me give you a quote from Josephus from his book, The Jewish War. Every city was divided into two armies and camped against one another, and the preservation of the one party was in the destruction of the other. So the daytime was spent in the shedding of blood and the night in fear. It was then common to see cities filled with dead bodies, still lying unburied, and those of old men mixed with infants, all dead and scattered about together. Women also lay amongst them without any covering for their nakedness. You might then see the whole province full of inexpressible calamities, while dread of still more barbarous practices which were threatened was everywhere greater than what had been already perpetrated. Red Horse of War. Revelation 6, 5 through 6, when he, that's the Lamb, that's Jesus, broke the third seal. I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. The black horse here represents famine. That's not controversial. Most people will agree with that. Why? Because you got a pair of scales in your hand. That represents, in his hand, that represents people weighing out scarce food as they try to survive in a famine. Every little grain is valuable. And we see this, for example, in Ezekiel 4.10. And thy meat which thou shalt eat shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day, and from time to time shalt thou eat it. 20 shekels a day, that's 8 ounces in the modern English, 8 ounces. That's not a lot of food to be eaten every day. You've got to weigh it out because you don't have a lot. From time to time you're going to eat it. That means as when you can get it, you'll eat it. It's not going to be a regular thing. 
Now, Ezekiel was referring to the hard times during the siege of Babylon. Jesus here in Revelation is when he talks about the scales eaten by weight. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, not by Babylon, but by the Romans in the first century. Now, the voice that came from the center of the four living creatures, that's where the throne was. So we'll assume that that's God speaking. Bruce Gore says it's the four living creatures speaking. I don't think so. I think it's God. And he's saying this, a quart of wheat for a denarius. Well, a denarius was a day's wage. So you've got to be in bad shape if you have to work all day just to eat. David Chilton said the inflation was so bad during the Jewish war that the price of wheat went up and the price of barley went up a thousand percent. Now that's some major league inflation. And of course you could buy three quarts of barley and only one quart of wheat for a denarius because barley was the cheaper food. It was the food of the common man. That's well known. Now let's talk about the famine that the black horse represented. We can read in Josephus, quote, As the famine grew worse, the frenzy of the insurgents kept pace with it, and every day both these horrors burned more fiercely. For since nowhere was grain to be seen, men would break into houses, and if they found some, they mistreated the occupants for having denied the possession of it. If they found none, they tortured them as if they had concealed it more carefully. Proof whether they had food or not was provided by the physical appearance of the wretches, those still in good condition were deemed to be well provided with food, while those who were already wasting away were passed over, for it seemed pointless to kill persons who would soon die of starvation. Many secretly bartered their possessions for a single measure of wheat if they happened to be rich, barley if they were poor, then they shut themselves up in the darkest corner of corners of their houses. In the extremity of their hunger, some even ate their grain underground, while others baked it. Guided by necessity and fear, nowhere was a table laid. The food was snatched, half-cooked from the fire, and torn into pieces. Pretty sad. Now, there's one obscure little part of this verse, the very last phrase there. The voice from the center of the creatures, the voice of God, said, Don't damage the oil and the wine. Well, what does that mean, don't damage the oil and the wine? Well, I've got three credible options here. I'll report and you decide. Here's the first option from David Chilton. He says that since the food, the barley and the wheat was being measured on scale, scales is the sign of Libra, and Libra is the month of September and October. So he's saying that the grain harvest failed in April and May. That's when the barley and, and the wheat harvest comes in, maybe June. But if the, in the spring and the summer, if the grain harvest failed, barley and wheat harvest failed, that means by September or October, the grain's going to be running out, and they're going to be in a famine condition. But that's right when the olives and the grapes come in. So they're going to come in unharmed after the grain famine. And this is going to present a great irony because you can survive on grain alone, but you can't survive on oil and wine. And so according to this view of Chilton's, this is just one more example of how wretched the people are because they got oil and wine, but it won't feed them. Well, I said David Chilton is extremely creative. I don't think he's right here, but I thought it was worth mentioning as a possibility. Here's another option. Scripture often speaks of God's blessings upon the righteous in terms of oil and wine. For example, in Psalms 104.15, we read this, And wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine. So oil and wine is a good thing. It's blessing. So the idea here is that judgment won't fall on the righteous. The unrighteous are going to be dying of starvation, but the righteous are going to be drinking oil and wine because they won't be in the city as it is destroyed. 
the Christians, when they saw the city surrounded by the Roman army, that Ro Roman army, which was the abomination which causes desolation, just as Jesus told them in the Luke version of the Olivet Discourse, flee from the city. Don't wait around. Don't run to get your cloak. Get out of town, which is exactly what the early Christians did. They went to Pella. Not a one of them perished. So the idea is don't harm the old and wine. That's for the, that refers to the Christians. The, the famine of wheat and barley refers to the anti-Christians, if you will. Well, that's two ideas. I think both of those came from Chilton. Here's a third idea that I got from Bruce Gore, and I think Gore's solution is the best. He says that the oil and the wine, as opposed to the wheat and the barley, refers to the artificial famine caused by the zealots, if you recall. They decided that they wanted to destroy the food supply in the city, and they did so because they wanted the Jews to fight to the death and expect the Messiah to supernaturally deliver them. If they had kept the food in there, they could have probably held out for five years, I read somewhere, and they could have probably, they might have been able to beat the Romans through natural means. Well, the Zealots didn't want that. They wanted an apocalyptic battle with the Romans and get it all over with so the Messiah could come. So they destroyed the food supply. So there was no food in the city, but outside the city for the Roman besiegers, there was plenty of oil and wine because there was no famine for them. I think that's the best solution. We go now to Revelation 6, verses 7 and 8. When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. Now let me just stop right there. NASB has ashen. The King James has a pale horse. The Greek word is chloros, which refers to a green sickly pallor. Like you've ever seen chlorine gas? I've never seen it, actually. I've seen it in the movies. Actually, I think I did see a swimming pool one time have an unfortunate reaction and gassed everybody in the pool, and they had to get out gagging. My brother-in-law somehow made a mistake with the chemicals. His family has never let him, my nieces have, and nephews have never let him forget it. I don't know. I didn't see that incident. I don't know whether they were, whether it was pale green or not, but I think chlorine gas is sort of pale green. So I just always like to think pale green. And behold, a pale green horse. And he who sat on it had the name death. So this is the pale green horse of death. And Hades was following with him. And of course, Hades is just a Greek word for death. So death and Hades is just, is a way of saying the same thing with emphasis and with punctuation. Death and Hades was following the pale horse of death, so that's why we're going to call the fourth horse the horse of death. Authority was given to them, given to death and Hades, over a fourth of the earth. In other words, a fourth of the land, I'm going to translate that, a fourth of the land was going to die. To kill with sword, death and Hades had the authority to kill with sword and famine and pestilence and by wild beast of the land. This pale horse of death is green. Chilton says it's a that the reason, in his view, that most translators don't use the word green is because nobody can believe John saw a green horse. So the KGV has pale. I don't know, pale green? I've seen pale green horses before, very similar to that, just pale. Kind of a whitish gray looking, maybe. The fourth horse represented pestilence, or death. Death which is carried out by pestilence. We see here that pestilence is one of the ways that the fourth of the lamb is going to be killed. But also you had sword, famine, and wild beast in addition to that. Before we, get, before we point out the significance of sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beast, let's look at this fraction, a fourth of the earth. Authority was given over a fourth of the land, or a fourth of, a fourth of the land. There is a progression of judgment between the seven seals, then the seven trumpets, and then the seven chalices, or the seven bowls. The seven seals destroy, each judgment destroys a fourth of the land. We get to the seven trumpets, and each trumpet destroys a third of the land. And then when we get to the seven chalices, we get 100% of the land is destroyed. So we go from 
25% destruction with the seals, 33% destruction with the trumpets, and 100% destruction with the chalices. Just to give you an example of that, we're talking about the trumpets. Revelation 8, 7, the first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the land, and the third part of the trees was burnt up. All right, let's look at the four ways the pale horse of death kills and Hades kills. Kills with sword, that's like the red horse. Kills with famine, that's like the black horse. And now the pale horse of death adds pestilence and beast. Now these four ways are parallel to God's four basic curses on ungodly nations. We read in Ezekiel 14.21. And as I read this, you will notice that these four means of death are exactly mentioned in Ezekiel. Maybe not in the same order, but they're there. For thus saith the Lord God, how much more when I send my four sore judgments, that's King James, excuse me, I think sore means bad. How much more when I send my four sore judgments upon Jerusalem? The sword is number one, the famine, that's number two, and the noisome of the obnoxious of the dangerous beast, that's number three, and the pestilence is number four, to cut it off from man and beast. So that's God's chosen way of doing judgment, sword, famine, beast, and pestilence. Ezekiel is referring to the four judgments that were coming on Jerusalem in 586, and John is referring, or Jesus is referring in Revelation, to the four judgments that are coming on Jerusalem in AD 70. Ezekiel 517, so, I will, so will I send upon you famine, one, evil beast, two, and they shall bereave thee, and pestilence, number three, and blood shall pass through thee, and I will bring the sword upon thee. There's the same four judgments. This is one more clue that the book of Revelation refers to 8070 because as Ezekiel pronounces judgment on Jerusalem in 586 B.C., John is pronouncing judgment on Jerusalem in 8078 in 70 A.D. Ladies and gentlemen, we are finished with Revelation chapter 6, 1 through 8, the first four seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. In our next audio, we're going to finish the chapter and do Revelation 6, 9 through 17, and we will take up the fifth and the sixth seal. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.